This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I are welcoming you to week 13 of our series on the parables of Jesus, which we're calling He Gave Us Stories. This week, we come to Matthew chapter 25, to the end of chapter 25, and to, um, well, a parable, kind of, <laughs> a, a story, Jesus talking about the final judgment. Sam, let me start there. Um, one of the first things that I ran into when I opened up the commentary that we've all kind of been using, you know, about this, about these stories, it started off by saying, this isn't really a parable. <laughs> so, so, so is this a parable? I think it fails the parable test, but it's pretty close. Okay. So a a parable is, you know, it's an illustrative tool that Jesus uses. Like a a third of all of Jesus's words are going to be some kind of a parable. And so what he'll do is he'll come and he'll offer a teaching and then he'll say, okay, the kingdom of heaven is kind of like this. And then he'll tell us a story of a, you know, a king and a son or a guy who owns a vineyard or, Mm -hmm. you know, he tells a story and then you're to kind of see, okay, which player is he? Which player am I? You know, and, and it's leading you toward a particular conclusion of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Right. Um, and even in this chapter, in chapter 25, you see that same language. So the parable of the 10 virgins, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, he says the kingdom of heaven will be like right um and then he tells a story of a wedding and all of all of that and you'll see in the parable of talents that you know the kingdom of god is like right um or he says it will be like a man going on a journey and so then he tells a story but in this he kind of gives the punchline you know god is going to come and he's going to to do something and then he uses a simile which is kind of a kissing cousin to a parable you know <laughs> where he says you know he's going to separate the people and then the whole parable kind of boils down to him saying you know like a shepherd does sheep and goats yeah um but that's kind of the whole parable he Jesus has already kind of like taken the <laughs> the the simile away when he says no it's going to be me and it's going to be the people and it's going to be over this um so he kind of explains the parable rather than telling us a parable where we're to interpret what it's illustrating. Okay. So, so does that so, make sense? Yeah. I, and so <laughs> what we're saying is that, you know, it may not be classically speaking a parable. It accomplishes the same thing. And so mm-hmm. we're kind of looking at it that way. Jesus is making a point here. Um, I don't want to say in an oblique way. It's like he's, he's making the point, but he does it by saying that, okay, I'm going to, you know, this is going to happen like this other thing happens. And so that's really where we're having to kind of read between the lines a little bit. Because mm-hmm. when I started reading this, and it started, it starts off by saying, um, this starts off, by the way, in verse 31 of chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So I stopped right there, you know, as I was starting to read through this, mm-hmm. and I went, hmm, okay. So Jesus says that the separation of people is going to be like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Obviously, he expected that his listeners, his audience, would know something about how a shepherd separates sheep from goats or, <laughs> or why they do that. And I didn't First of all, it never occurred to me. I always thought shepherd, sheep herder. So you've got sheep. It didn't occur to me mm-hmm. that they kept both sheep and goats. Um, and so I started doing a little reading. And not necessarily from Bible sites. These were animal husbandry sites and YouTube videos I watched. And um, and in fact, it's very, very, very common for somebody who keeps sheep to also keep goats. They are mm-hmm. a very similar kind of animal, meaning that – Sheep, for example, you can raise sheep and maybe you're raising them to to slaughter them and have 
you know, meat from, you know, you're going to have the, the meat from the sheep, but you can also raise them and get harvest the wool from them. You know, you may not kill the sheep you raise. Goats are kind of the same thing. In most parts of the world, goat milk is very popular. Goats are, are raised and they're milked. and the milk, So you don't necessarily need to butcher the animals is what I'm getting at. So it's a situation where, you know, it's kind of the same sort of practice. If you're somebody that like, I really love my sheep and I love my goats and I don't ever want to hurt them. Well, you don't have to hurt them. You can make money off them without that. So I started reading into why do shepherds have to separate them? And it was interesting to me because I I learned two things. First is I learned that they don't separate them during the day. When they turn them loose out in the pasture, they just let them go. Um, And the sheep and the goats do whatever sheep and goats are going to do. They go around and look for food. They eat. They graze. They whatever. But when they bring them into the pen, that's when they they will direct sheep into one area of the pen and goats into the other. They don't keep them confined um, close to each other. And I started looking for the reasons why that was done. And there were a bunch of them. Um, But the ones that stuck out to me were – their diets are very different. Um, sheep are grazers and goats are browsers. I didn't know the difference, but a grazer eats grass <laughs> that's at their feet. You know, they graze on the grass. And a browser, which is a goat, will eat – they'll eat grass also, but they'll eat anything up high as well. They'll eat shrubs. They'll eat moss off the side of the building. <laughs> the, you know, the one guy said a goat will eat pretty much anything it can put its lips on. So goats eat anything. Um, and as they a result, like diversity. they do. But as a result of that, goats can tolerate things that will kill a sheep. Um, and so, one of the things that they talked about was that when they put them in the pen, they will sometimes put feed in the pen also, so that if they're hungry during the night, they've got something to eat. And feed that is designed for goats will contain copper because I guess that's good for goats. I didn't know that, but huh. they put copper in the feed. They won't. They wouldn't do that to a sheep. It would kill the sheep. So they feed them differently because their dietary requirements are different. They also socialize differently. I thought this was fun. Goats, when they have a dispute, if two male goats want to have it out, they will posture first. They both will rear up on their hind legs and kind of like, you know, try to make themselves look intimidating. And then they'll, you know, come down and charge. And sheep are very no nonsense. <laughs> if a sheep, if you and a sheep are going to get into it, the sheep lowers its head and goes. That's it. And so it would catch the goat unawares. The goat would be posturing. Meanwhile, it's got a chest full of sheep, and that goats get injured when that happens uh, because they're not ready for that sheep. That's like I thought we were going to fight. <laughs> you know whoa, whoa, whoa. what was that whole hind leg thing? I, you know. Anyway. Uh, so the idea was that they are distinctly different creatures and they have unique needs in terms of how they are kept in the pen and that's why they were separated. There were some other reasons given, but those mm-hmm. were the ones that stuck out to me. What do you think we take from that? I mean, Jesus says separating the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Is what do, well, let me just a sec. What do you take from that? Because now we know a little bit about why and how they're separated. Yeah, I, do. I mean, the 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 obvious one that jumps to my mind is sheep are a lot easier to to manage. Sure, you know, and some of the stuff I read, like goats are more prone to infection. Yep, you know, because they're eating all kinds of stuff, they tend to destroy your stuff more because they're trying to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> and and they climb out of pens where sheep don't climb. I've seen goats. You know, one of the reasons why they're called mountain goats is they climb. They'll climb on the side of a cliff, and you're like, how in the world did that goat get up there? Yeah. So they're they're more prone to mischief. Um, they're also more temperamental, as from what I understand, than sheep in terms of like being, you know, provoking an incident with other animals around them. Um, and so, like, they just seem like they're they're more into mischief. They're harder to manage. Where sheep feel a little bit more formulaic, and they, you know, they're very very prone to be with the flock because they scare easy. They, right. you know, they they like being with their own. They need a little bit more, you know nestling safe environment from what I understand and goats are a little bit more kind of going to the beat of their own drummer with a lot of stuff you know one thing that I was told or that I read rather I wasn't told I read it one of the things I read was that a goat will very often become the thing that the sheep will follow when they turn them loose out into the pasture um, that goats tend to be very bold 
and they wander off and they go chase whatever. Like we were just saying, a goat's <laughs> like, look, a wall, let's climb it and eat whatever's at the top of it. Um, <laughs> and the sheep are, the sheep want to follow somebody. Sheep want to follow someone. And goats tend to be bolder and they tend to go do things. And so this one, guy who was a shepherd was saying, yeah, you got to keep an eye on them because the, the goats will lead them off into who knows what. <laughs> um, and I thought to myself, that's interesting because if we mm-hmm. understand what Jesus is saying to be the righteous are the sheep and the unrighteous are the goats because that's how this separates them out, then in a way, what, you know, one of the things that, and I don't want to read too much into the, to the, you know, any, anytime you start to read too much into things, they start to break down. But, sure. but it is interesting that the goats are are sort of uncontrolled and get into all kinds of mischief, and they can lead the sheep astray. And I thought that's kind of interesting because mm-hmm. if I was going to take the righteous and the unrighteous and say what's one of the characteristics of the unrighteous, it's a get into everything, and that that and if you follow them, they'll lead you astray. Mm-hmm. And I think in the first century when Jesus is saying this, I think that would have been common knowledge. Yeah. So as everybody's like, oh, yeah, goats, you know. <laughs> now, you know, today you say goat and it, you know, people think greatest of all time. Right, like I, right. That's like become part of our lexicon. Goats are not the goat. <laughs> why, why, why do they not want Tom Brady to be among the sheep? I don't understand. Right, exactly. You know? That's as far as I <laughs> So then when Jesus is saying that he's going to separate um, the people of all the nations – um, now that's other. That's another interesting thing. To mm-hmm. the listeners of that time, when he said "all the nations," they probably would have heard that without the "s" on the end of it. <laughs> you know, in other <laughs> words, as they're listening to him, they would have heard "all the nation." Of course, all of us. He's going to separate you know Israel. us, Israel, the righteous from the unrighteous. But that's not what the the word there is actually ethnos. It's it is. The nations. It's like every nation, uh, you know, Jew, Gentile, everybody. So that would have kind of caught them, I think, maybe unawares. Like, what, what, excuse me, what other nations are we talking about here? Um, they would have been confused by this idea that it would be all the nations. Mm-hmm, for sure. And, and that also presupposes that the end is not going to come until the invitation has been extended into all of these Gentile nations. Okay. Um, so, so we talked about this you know, last week or the week before, how there were a lot of people in the early church that were like, okay, he said he's coming back and kind of like tick-tock, tick-tock, yeah. you know, <laughs> like yeah. waiting for him to come back at any moment. And this is presupposing, no, 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 there's going to be an end gathering. The gospel is going to go forth to all nations, which I never really thought about uh, in terms of this passage until studying it this week. Like he's saying, okay, when I come back in my glory, I'm going to gather from all nations, which presumes that they are going to be believers in yeah, all nations. nations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's interesting, and it's interesting because, you know, as a uh, as a good Calvinist, I would say that, you know, God has his elect, you know, mm-hmm. in every nation. Um, there are, you know, I, I think we will know when the last chosen one has come to faith because then he'll come back. You know, I mean, that's in, in his list of, of things. It's like, okay, well, he hasn't shown up yet. He hadn't been born yet, but we're, we're waiting for Bob. And when Bob shows up, then, you know, then we'll, we'll wrap this whole thing up. And I think that, you know, and I feel kind of reinforced in that by what it says here next, where it says, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So mm-hmm. anytime I hear from the foundation of the world, of course, my mind immediately goes to Paul writing in Ephesians, mm-hmm. where Paul says that we were chosen actually before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless like him. So that so God has determined that we would share in Christ's righteousness by his choice before the the world was actually made. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it was all settled even back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of this is yeah. really according to God's plan. Yeah, this is, this is the reason. I mean, you think about it. He has prepared a kingdom for you to inherit that was already in motion and, and working from before the foundation of the world, which means the reason why he created the universe was this. 
Yeah. He wants to share this kingdom that's prepared for you, that, that you've been chosen for, to be in relationship with him for all of eternity and to the future. This was his plan before he hurled the galaxies into motion. And it's an interesting thought because – and I did think this thought, which is why I know it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting thought because the kingdom of heaven that we're talking about isn't necessarily – like if you say, well, what's the zip code? You know, What planet is it on? Where does it – no, the kingdom of heaven is outside of our physical universe. What, whatever form it takes, you know, when he talks about this kingdom, it is – at this point, it is a spiritual kingdom kingdom. It's a spiritual reality. Mm -hmm. We can talk about the kingdom of heaven is here, and it is. It's in God's people. But again, that's a spiritual, that's God's spirit indwelling his people, and and therefore this is his kingdom. And there will be a day when he will make a new heavens and a new earth, because he's promised us that also. But this kingdom that, you know, we're kind of talking about here now, I, I feel like that it's like, okay, he's got this kingdom that he's put together, and he made this whole universe just to kind of grow the people that he wanted to be in this kingdom. It's like the universe was made for us, uh, you know, mm-hmm. so that we could come to be, uh, which is really kind of, you know, fascinating, you know, that, mm-hmm. that because it, when it came to other heavenly beings, the angels, he just created them. It's like, I, I need some like this, I'm going to make some like that. Um, and with us, it's almost like, I don't know. There's, there feels like there's a degree of random chance in it. You know, it's like, um, let's see what the gene pool creates. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's just interesting <laughs> that God chose to do that for, you know, for those of us that would be in his kingdom, that he made this universe and that, you know, he made it so that we could grow up in it. Mm-hmm. And when I first came to faith, and I would say most people probably had the same feeling. Uh, or belief system that kind of crept into my brain somehow. I think most people would agree. Like they see God as kind of distant. Sure. You know, he's, he's a loving God. You know, he's a good God. Um, but he's up there and he's kind of objectively hoping that we choose the right path and he's hoping that we're good people so that on the day of judgment he can look at us and say, you know what, I really like this one. This, this one did good. We're, we're going to welcome him in. And you know what? I'd like to get to know him in heaven, even though we really haven't gotten to know each other before. And, right. you know, he can be a part of my heaven. And what this is saying is, no, the Lord, before the foundation of the earth, has made this for you. Mm-hmm. He's chosen this for you. He has known you all along. Like, this is the great passion that drives the entire story of redemption is not God up there kind of haphazardly wondering who's going to be good and bad. It's God rolling out the story of redemption so that he can be with you in this intimate relationship where he has purchased everything for you. It is his righteousness that wins you into his presence. It's his goodness, his grace, his love. It's all paid for by him and made available to you, and that's been his heartbeat from the beginning of creation. It's a very intense, personal pursuit that yeah. he has. It's not haphazard. Yeah. And there is um, and there is a judgment here that's taking place. Um, the people are being the people from all nations are being separated into two groups that are going to have very different outcomes. Like I said, you know, he said to the sheep, you know, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The goats aren't going to have such a good outcome here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the I, because we're talking about a judgment here. Um, I found it fascinating because I read a bunch of different commentaries every time I'm studying a passage, and not all of them are reformed in their theology. I, I've got commentaries from several different sources, and, and I believe you can learn things from people who maybe are, have a different twist on the theology than you do because they'll get you to think about something that you maybe didn't think about or hadn't thought about otherwise. And this passage in particular, it was all over the place. Um, the uh, the dispensationalists, they grabbed this and said that, that these people that were being judged here, that they were being judged based on how they had treated the Jews during the tribulation. 
and they had all these different you know it's like all these different things of, of who who does this stand for who does that who is that who are the who are the sheep who are the goats who's being judged what are they being judged on what's that kind of thing and it felt very tortured to me um mm-hmm. what i saw was that jesus was saying okay i'm going to have all of you over here on the right who are my sheep the ones that I knew, the ones that I've known all along, the ones that I've called to be a part of this kingdom, the ones to whom I have given the gift of faith, because we know that, you know, we know Paul from Ephesians 2, by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It, what? Faith is the gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. It's like salvation is by faith and God gives us that faith. We know that. That's a, that's a really solid principle of scripture here. So these are the people that he has known, that he has called, to whom he has given faith. And then mm-hmm. he kind of lists some characteristic behaviors, uh, from them. He goes through this list of things that they would have done. Uh, he names six things, in fact. He says that he was hungry, verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So there's food and drink. There's uh, clothing and shelter there, clothing and, and a welcome. And then there's visitation when you are sick or in prison. So I kind of separated them into those three kind of groups. It's like, well, you gave me things to sustain my physical existence. Um, then you also gave me shelter and clothed me. And then there was this support when I, you know, it's like I said, the, the church practically invented the terms hospital visitation and prison ministry. I don't think you heard them mm-hmm. a, apart from the church. So um, these were really the characteristics of the early church, were they not? I mean, this, yeah. is what that, this is what the church was known for at its start. Yeah, very much so. I mean, if you go and you read the, the writings that were coming out of the early church from people who were not believers, they kind of looked at the Christians and they were like, these people despise worldly things. Like, you know, they they give away. They they consider themselves immortal, like they have this everlasting inheritance, and so they treat this world's goods like they're nothing. Um, the the emperors right, would would talk about how, you know, they called them the Galileans because Jesus was from Galilee. But yeah. one emperor says, you know, it's a shame that the the Romans look to the Galileans to take care of our own poor. They not only take care of their own poor, but they take care of ours as well, and that's disgraceful. And I mean, the Christians would run into the cities where there were famine and plague to take care of the sick. The, the Christians were the ones who began the the university systems to teach the poor and mm-hmm. to bring education and literacy to people. They were the ones – I mean, that's why most of the, the hospitals in our country that are old – have names like Holy Cross or Saint sure. Jude or sure. Saint this or Saint that. It was because it was the church who founded that, and you know, as government has grown, it's kind of swallowed up all of those responsibilities of education and and healthcare and everything else. But at the root, that's what the church was known for, um, and they were tremendously relevant in society. My mom was raised in a home with an alcoholic dad. She came from poverty. She had to work in the the. Catholic school that she attended as one of the service girls to to earn her tuition but she says you know her life they would they would hold dances they would hold youth clubs in Louisville Kentucky and she said the church was like the source of her life they took care of the family they took care of the clothing and helped out with everything and you know that's her memories of childhood were in a you know rather dysfunctional home that had no means and the church was their lifeline and that was you know all through history the church has been that presence in in societies, and I think we're losing some of that, some of the relevance of of being that. You know, we still, you know, the church even today will adopt two and a half times more children than those that are outside the church. The church still, you know, does more for the homeless and produ- provides more beds than the government does for homeless people. You know, the, there's all sorts of ways that the church really helps, but it's almost become um, 
Invisible. In, I don't want to say this, but invisible and yeah. institutionalized to where yeah. the individual Christians aren't the ones doing it anymore. Now we give money to a parachurch ministry that does it on our behalf. Mm-hmm. And you know, it takes some of the personal nature away and, and the church catches a little bit of a black eye, but it's still – Far and away, does more humanitarian good for the world than than any government does. You know the uh, the example that I uh, found when I was doing the study notes this week was one that really struck me, uh, and it had to do with infanticide in the Roman culture. That when a child was born, um, they would be evaluated, and if in the judgment of the parents or whomever, this child was not quote stout enough, like. They didn't look sturdy and healthy like they were going to make it. They would literally discard the child. And by discard, mm-hmm. I mean they would throw this infant into a garbage heap. And Tertullian, who's one of the very early church writers, talked about how the Christians would go to these refuse heaps, these garbage heaps, and rescue these infants that had been mm-hmm thrown there, and then they would adopt them. If they were healthy enough, Mm -hmm. they would adopt them and raise them as their own children. And here's the part that really shook me. If the child was not healthy enough and could not be saved, they would still take that child in, and they would care for that child the best they could until the child died, and then they would give it a proper burial. And I just, you know, you read something like that, and you're like, the heart of these people to do something like that. I feel I feel a little ashamed of us today. I feel like we're mm-hmm. a little standoffish and a little squeamish about getting involved in things that that it just like you say, the the first Christian church, it's like they just completely didn't even think about it. They were like, "Oh yeah, you know, we're we're just we're just here for a little while and then we're going on to see." So everything while we're here, we're just kind of trying to clean up the messes and and money doesn't matter and we're just going to go in and take care of these things. Mm-hmm. Um it was remarkable. I mean, that was a yeah. remarkable state of affairs. Yeah. Um, the the natural state of humanity, and it's sad to say this, but the Bible is very emphatic on this. The natural state of humanity is very much about self. You know, if, if you looked at the ethics that were in play when Jesus came along, you looked at, you know, the tablets of the Roman law, for example. One of the laws that was in the tablets of the Roman law was that if you have a deformed infant, you are required to let it die. Uh, the philosophers talked about how giving money to the poor was actually a disservice to virtue because these people it just prolongs their life and these are poor people who are miserable and you should just let them die why waste your money prolonging their life i mean they said things like this and so when christianity comes along it was a it was a massive attraction because for most of the world that were slaves or women or second class citizens poor uh, no system of thought ever came to them and said you know what you are precious you you have dignity and Christ comes along and considers himself and counts himself among slaves, you know, servants. Uh, he became a servant. He left the throne to become a servant. He shows dignity to women. He he reaches out to the poor. He lets the lepers touch him, and he touches the lepers. And he goes to the 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 farthest dregs of society, and he exalts these people. And in response, the early church was overwhelmingly – it wasn't Roman sophisticated men who said, oh, yes, let's, let's – I agree with this philosophy. It was the, the earliest church. You look at demographic studies. It was overwhelmingly women. It was overwhelmingly the poor. And they were mocked for this, by the way. It was mm-hmm. slaves. It was um, – and later on, <laughs> the, the highfalutin you know, power brokers and the noblemen and everybody else said – Okay, I'll come. I mean, Augustine even said he had a hard time coming to Christianity because so many foolish people found it before him. Um, and, and that was one of the black eyes on Christianity is it was so filled with women and so filled with poor people in an age where they were considered lesser than. Did, did somebody tell Augustine, hey, we were just waiting for you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, like – and he attributes him coming to faith to his mom who prayed relentlessly for his salvation. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, all of this, the church 
gosh, I wish I could, you know, and there's so much more to learn about this, but we tend to, to look at society, we look at Western values and, and things like humility and charity, and we tend to think, well, of course we're smart enough to figure out, of course these things are good, but we are standing on the shoulders of Christianity that has brought this ethic. Prior to the spread of Christianity, you did not see these ethics in the world. Charity, right. humility. Humility was seen as a weakness. It was something that you did not, you know, want to to boast in your weakness. That's crazy. You know, right. that's that's insane. Um, and Christianity turned the virtues of the world upside down um, to where you began to see this kind of charity and the love of the 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 lost and the left out and the least. You yeah. know. It, it radically transformed the world. You mentioned the the guys going around and finding these babies that were abandoned, and that in the ancient world it was technically called exposure, where you would just throw them out, and you know it was like if the gods want to save them, you know I'm not killing them. I'll just leave them out there to the elements, and if they live, they live. If they die, they die. And I mean they had kind of a who cares attitude toward it. Justinian, who is one of the Christian emperors who will come later and writes the Justinian Code actually puts it into law that if a Christian comes across an abandoned child, that he is required to adopt that child into his home because we have been adopted into the kingdom of grace. Mm -hmm. And the logic for that was like we were orphans and the father adopted us into this great kingdom of love. How much more do we owe one another? Well, you mentioned humility, and then so we have the reaction of the righteous to the, to the Son of Man saying, you know, you did all these things for me. Verse 37, it says, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when when did we see you hungry and feed you or, or thirsty and give you drink? I'm imagining some confusion on their part. And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus is saying, you didn't do it to me directly, but you did it to one of these, he says, the least of my brothers, which I, again I think is interesting because he says the least of my brothers. It's like mm-hmm. the, the least one among you is as important to me as I am. Mm-hmm. Which is just wild, you know. You think when you when you're going through it, you know, it it's like God. Do you see me? You know, there's a lot of times where where we feel that way, or we want to ask that question. Here, coming out of the very mouth of of Jesus Himself, He's like, you know, the one who is the farthest down, the the farthest rung on the ladder, on the bottom. Whatever you do for him or her. It's like you're doing it for me. Why would he say that? It's because he so identifies with his people that our suffering is his suffering. Mm-hmm. Our need is like his need. Right. And he's looking at his people saying, like, this matters to me. I want you to love them as though you're loving me because I feel what they feel. I empathize. I, can, I entered into their suffering. I know what they're going through. And it's, it's like you know um, when Paul comes to faith. In the book of Acts, when he's on the road to Damascus and he's going to to round up Christians so he can put them to death um, or have them put to death, Jesus confronts him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and you're like, wait a minute, where where's Jesus in this story? The reality is when Paul is persecuting Christ's people, Jesus took it personally and said, you're causing me pain when you cause them pain. And that's a wild reality that Jesus so identifies with us that our plight becomes his plight. And you know, you mentioned the story of the conversion of Saul. When that happened, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What was, what was Paul's answer? It says, and he said, uh, who are you, Lord? You know, it's like Saul's like, I'm not persecuting anybody that looks like a giant light and can knock me flat to the ground. And then and then he answered him, says he said, and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So it's a situation where you know Paul didn't see himself uh, didn't didn't realize who he was persecuting. Like, I'm persecuting all of these traitors to our our people. 
because I think that's how he regarded them as being traitors to the Jewish people. Um, and that's who he was persecuting. He, he was zealous for what he saw as the purity of the Jews. That was his mm-hmm. desire to purify them by getting rid of these people that were worshiping this false Messiah. And all of a sudden he finds out that false Messiah is the real Messiah and says, you're not mm-hmm. persecuting them. You're persecuting me. Yeah. But um, Paul's re- his response is the same as the sheep are in a sense. It's like, well, uh, when did I persecute you? Right. <laughs> like, I don't remember persecuting somebody who looks like you. Yeah. Um, and Jesus gives the same response. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Right. Um, that's essentially what's going on here because Jesus identifies with his people. Well, and then the flip side of this here, um, the the conclusion to the judgment story in verse 41, because we say Paul said, you know, his answer was, who, who, when, when did I persecute you? You know, um, that's what the goats will say. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer. So the goats are speaking back saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the, the description of the, the, or the answer of the goats is, hey, if we'd have known it was you, you know, if you'd have showed up, we'd have given you some food, Lord. But he's like, I did show up. I was there. I was there as the least of these. Um, I think that's an interesting thing because, I hear about, I, you know, one of the things that you hear is, do you know who I am? Or yeah. if I'd have just known who you were, you know, that kind of thing. Like this, the identity of an individual is a big status thing in our society, in our world. You know, don't you know who you're talking to? That kind of thing. So there's that mm-hmm. sort of feeling that people have of, I'm an important person and you should recognize that and you should treat me differently because I'm an important person. And, and Jesus's attitude is so 180 degrees opposite of that. I mean, he is as he's as humble as he can possibly be when he says, "If you mistreat any of these little ones over here, any of them, you have mistreated me." Mm-hmm. Which is wild, and it shows the it shows that the kingdom of God presents a, a an upside down ethic. It is always concerned with those that are in a station of life that's beneath you. And the world's way of working, it's like, you know, we, we step on the people that are beneath us. We step on their head to push ourselves up and we want to climb the ladder. So we're glad to step on those beneath us. And what Jesus is saying is, no, in my kingdom, you reach down and you lift up. You know that that's the DNA of heaven is always reaching down and mm-hmm. and lifting up, and you know when you first start into this, if we're calling it a parable or a simile or whatever, you'll notice that the sheep and goats never came up again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right after that beginning introduction when he gives the comparison, the rest of this is about you know what he's saying to people. Um, but when he first introduces himself, and I texted you this, and hopefully this will come across clear because Daniel is where I'm going with this, and it can be pretty confusing. But he introduces <laughs> yes, himself. Daniel can be very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to try to make it clear really briefly. But he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and you're like, the Son of Man. Okay, well, that's a messianic title. It's, it's something that comes from the prophet Daniel. Ezekiel will use that language. And it's referring to the Messiah, but where it comes from specifically is really fascinating to watch what happens in Daniel chapter 7 because he's talking about, you know, when the kingdom of God is going to be inaugurated. And he talks about, you know, this weird language of beasts and horns. Set that aside for a moment. Don't worry about <laughs> beasts and horns. <laughs> but I have thoughts, but I'm not sharing them. 
because that's a whole nother episode. But anyway, it starts with the Ancient of Days. And that's God, you know, eternal God, the ancient of days, and he's on his throne and he's got white hair and white robes and, you know, fire in his eyes and a river of fire is coming out from him. And it says that thousands upon thousands are attending to him. So it's like, you know, he's just servants that are coming to him and pouring themselves out. What do you need? What do you need, O ancient of days? How can I serve you? And then tens of thousands, times tens of thousands are there in his courts. And you're to imagine, you know, here's God high and lifted up. And Daniel, in his vision, sees something that would have been really scandalous to them. And and we should understand that this is scandalous. It says, all of a sudden I see one whose image is like the a son of man, and he's coming on these clouds of glory, and he's coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And then something unbelievable happens. The Ancient of Days confers upon the Son of Man all authority and dominion and power and glory and I want you to stop for a moment because we tend to like gloss over this in our minds when we when we think about this. But if you were in the courts of heaven watching this happen, you know, it's a very clear pecking order. You have God, the Father who reigns over everything. He's supreme, right? Then you have the angels and, and, and the thousands and the multitudes that surround the throne and they're all looking at him and it's like, you know, praising him and serving him. And then all of a sudden a man – comes into his presence. And remember, in the scriptures, we're told that that men are a little lower than the angels. And so when Jesus comes in here, now all of a sudden he is a man. He has united himself after the gospel, after the, the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension into heaven. You know, he says, all authority and power has been given to me. When he goes before the Ancient of Days as a man, all of a sudden now he holds all authorities. But Apart from him being the son of God, who is he? He's a man. Mm-hmm. In the courts of heaven, he would have been the least of these. Yeah. And yet God the son attached his own identity to a man and he's exalted to become the one who has all authority and glory and power and dominion in all of heaven. So what does the Ancient of Days do? It's like the Ancient of Days looks at his son who's now a man and says, come on up here. Mm-hmm. Come on up here. And gives him glory and power and dominion. And then the rest of Daniel, it's talking about how all the saints of the Most High are going through suffering, radical suffering under these beasts and horns and everything. And what happens? At the end of that chapter, he's given a vision where all the saints of the Most High are pardoned by God. They're given a word of deliverance. And then what does he do? He gives them power and dominion and glory over all the kingdoms of the earth. And so what what you notice here is God is very quick to share his power and his dominion in some sense downward. I'm going to exalt a man, the son of man, to have all authority. I'm going to take the saints of the most high and they're going to reign with me. And it's like he looks around at the least of these and he's always pulling them up to reign alongside of him. And that, when you come into this parable and Jesus says, hey, whatever you do for the least of these, what you know, feeding them and, and clothing them and going to visit them in prison and all these kinds of things, he's not giving you a checklist to where when you show up on that day and, and you know, you're, are, you going, are you going with the sheep or the goats? Mm-hmm. He doesn't break out the checklist and say, okay, did you do these things? The idea is the very DNA of heaven, the, the heartbeat of heaven is to look – down and lift up. You know, the Ancient of Days pulls the Son of Man and gives them all authority. The Son of Man pulls the saints of the Most High up and gives them authority and dominion and reigns. And he's saying, do you have the same heart as your God who looks and lifts, who condescends and lifts up out of a sense of humility and kindness and goodness? So if God would do that to you, he looked down and saw your plight and lifted you up Do you have a transformed heart? Do you have the same kind of DNA that is going to reign in the kingdom of heaven to where you look and see people that are, quote, unquote, beneath you who are the least of these? Do you have the same heart that cannot rest until you lift them up? Because that's the heart of our God. So it's not so much a checklist, do you deserve it? 
It's more of a, has your heart been transformed into the very ethos of heaven itself? You know, that passage in Daniel 7 that you describe um, where it talks about the ancient of days and then down in verse 13 where it says, you know, there came one like the son of man, like a son of man and was given dominion and so forth. The <laughs> verse 15 always made me chuckle. That's the next verse. After this, after the son of man being given dominion, Daniel writes in, <laughs> Daniel writes in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. <laughs> you know, it's like so. These things that Daniel saw, this vision that Daniel saw, was so wild to him that the Ancient of Days would glorify a son mm-hmm. of man. That Daniel was like, "I this is giving me a headache." <laughs> you know, it's like something is not right here. Yeah, um, it would have been. I mean, you got to think about it. They were Jews, very, very proudly. The I, proudly monotheistic, and the idea of a man becoming God would have yeah. been blasphemous. Daniel sees this and he's like, "I'm not sure what I just saw. I don't yeah. like this. Yeah. I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I don't like don't it strike at all. me down, Lord." <laughs> but then he goes like, and he asks one of the people who's you know around the courts of heaven, and he's like, "Can you please explain this to me?" And the explanation, the second part of it is, he says, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Right. Uh, and so it's like, why did that happen? Why did God exalt a son of man, right, Jesus, the son of man, to reign? Well, it's because men, this is wild, mankind is going to reign in heaven. We have our king who represents us, who reigns at the right hand of the Most High, who intercedes, who's sovereign over all things, and now he has exalted us to be part of the kingdom of heaven, and we will receive that kingdom and possess it forever and ever because of what he's done. So when I think about this passage, this parable, the this simile, the final judgment here, um, it feels, to some extent, it feels a little bit um, like it's 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 the conclusion of something. Like he, like by the time mm-hmm. we get to see this, the Son of Man on His throne, and everybody gets separated. You're either a sheep or a goat. By that time, it's too late for anything to make any difference. You either are or you aren't. You're in one group or the other. This is it. This is the mm-hmm. final judgment. At the end of all of this, the people that are in the goat camp they get sent out into eternal torment and the people that are in the sheep camp they come into eternal blessing and reward so you know so the question that i have to ask myself is what do i as a 21st century christian make of this story what what is there here for me today to take from this to say here's something that i've learned because what i've learned so far is that sheep and goats can't be in the pen together um, and that you know the sheep you know, have the DNA of heaven and we look down and lift up and we take care of the least of these and, and that kind of stuff. And I, and I get all that, but, but, but what's my takeaway? Is my takeaway that I've just, I've, I've got to do more all the time. I've got to do more all the time. And I feel like it was important to me, at least in, for like study notes this week to say that this isn't about what you do, even, even though it seems that way. Even though I mm-hmm. honestly, it seems that way. It seems like Jesus is listing some things going, you do all these things and you're in the sheep. No, no. What he's saying is, this is what the sheep do. This is how the righteous live. This is what they do. And it made me think of the passage in James 2. As a matter of fact, I put that into the study notes this week as a related passage to read. Because mm-hmm. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, asks a very pointed question in, J- in chapter 2 of his letter. Verse 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And the answer to that question is that you can't be saved apart from faith, but you also can't be saved by a faith that doesn't produce good works. It's like if if your faith doesn't change you, then – then something's wrong because faith mm-hmm. should change who we are. So I guess what I'm suggesting is that maybe the takeaway from this is because pe- there's people I think that are like, you know, am I, am I really saved? Am I one of God's people? How do I know? How do I feel confident about that? The question I would ask is, 
how have you changed since you got to know him? What, what has changed in your heart? What has changed in your attitude toward the least and the lost and the left out? How do you regard them now versus how did you regard them before? If you have seen, essentially, it's like a Star Trek episode where your DNA gets remade. Um, but I'm just saying, you know, it's, 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 if heaven's DNA is being imprinted on your heart, you're going to see a change, right? I mean, is that, mm-hmm. is that, a good takeaway from this, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And and the the thing that that is so helpful to walk away from is if if you look at this parable and you think, okay, Jesus is saying, you know, I was imprisoned and I was hungry and I was naked. And he uses all. I was in. You know, I was sick. He uses all of these languages of people that are really needy, right. right? And you're like, you know, is he just telling me what to do? Stop and forget that for a moment. Right. Each and everything that he lists here was your status before he came for you. Mm. You know, hungry for righteousness, thirsty for righteousness, a stranger that didn't have a home. You were naked without a robe of righteousness. You were you were imprisoned to sin, enslaved to it. You know, you were lonely. You were sick and dying, like dead in your sin and trespasses, in an absolutely desperate condition. And he came for you. And that's where you have to start. You can't just go, well, I'm a good person, but I wonder if I measure up and I wonder if I – no, you're all these things and he did all this for you. He came for you when you were all these things and it's to marvel at the love of God, to to recognize and to humble yourself and saying, man, like everything I have has been a gift from him, everything – He's done for me. And then to recognize the treasure that he offers you, like this is the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about an eternal reward with him being in his presence, experiencing his love. And it's always like to let go because what keeps you from serving the left out? Mm-hmm. What, what keeps you from serving the poor and the hungry and the imprisoned and, and the naked and all that is you value your stuff more than you value the thought of helping them. And so guilt might get you to do it for a little while, right? Right. It, you know, I'm going to I'm going to let the money pour through my fingers to go to people who are poorer than me. But unless you're grabbing and this is just a human condition, unless you're grabbing hold of something that's better than your money or your time or whatever it is that he's calling you to give up, like it's going to feel Bitter. There's a bitterness in giving it away. So it's like you're recognizing that, oh my gosh, Jesus has done this for me and I now get to serve. I get to, not have to, I get to serve him. And when I go to that hungry person, when I go to that naked person, the sick person, the imprisoned person, it's my way of being able to love him by loving the least of these. Yeah. And he says, I, I so relate to them that when you give to them, you give to me. And so it's coming from a place of gratitude. And so that's always where you have to start is, you know, I've, I've mentioned this story before, but my father-in-law telling me when I was struggling to, to get over certain sins and, and to live more of a full Christian life, he says, you know, the problem is you, you don't need to try harder. You need to love more. You need to love your Savior more and recognize who he is. And then all of a sudden, everything else starts looking like rubbish by comparison. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really how it works. Yeah. So it's, I would say if you're asking me that question, the, the key to this is recognizing how much you've been given right. and now out of love for the one who gave everything for you, including his own life, out of an excitement to worship him and show gratitude – Open your hands. Grab hold of him, which means you've got to let him control the mission of your time and money and everything else. Yeah. I think that what we need to do is we don't need to look at the list of things and go, check, 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 I did all these, is we need to look at this and say, what is the character, the nature, the heart of somebody who does these things? Is Mm -hmm. that heart in me? Mm -hmm. And you will notice that, you know, even – if I go around in ministries, let's say I go to a recovery ministry, you know, if I if I talk to the person who's helping to run it or teaching, 
the discipleship programs, I bet if I dig in 90% of the cases, the person that's in there is there because they were once an addict and they know what it's like and now yeah. they want to lift other people out. Yeah. If I go to, to a, a ministry for adoption, chances are most of the people who devote their lives to those kinds of ministries have been touched by a ministry or been touched by an adoption in their life. That And it means something to them. If you look at people who are in cancer ministries – almost guarantee you that cancer has affected their life in a way that made them make that decision. And so all that to say, like, so the key is to recognize you were hungry. Now go help someone who's hungry. Like you might not literally be looking for a meal, but you were hungry. You were you were unsatisfied. You were searching. You know, you can relate to all of these people because in some sense you were all of these things when Christ came to rescue you. So identify with them. Start there and and worship your God by loving these people. And he says when you love them, you love him. You know, one of the things I've always said, the most important thing we can do, I think, for people that come into our church is to let them know that there is here a place they can find where they belong. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the other things that I would just want to add to that is like this is a very specific list of people in prison and you know naked mm-hmm. and all sure. this stuff. But I think in addition to this, like the ethic behind this is just showing kindness and compassion to people, period. Amen. You never Amen. know. Amen. You never know. A lot of the stories of people that you come across in a typical day, you don't know who's hungry and thirsty and, and naked in some sort or in, in chains. And I remember we were listening to a song. That's probably going back two or three years ago uh, by Sean Groves, and it, it actually pulls language from this quote-unquote parable. Um, <laughs> but he says the refrain of it is when we love the least, when we love the weak, when we love these, we love Jesus. And then the whole song is just listing out you know, different people that you come across every day. And the last line of the song I look over and I saw my, my wife is tearing up, but it's you know, there's 12 lines I'm going to read. These are scattered through the songs, but it says, Jesus brings a meal for tips. Jesus trying hard to quit. Jesus raising two alone. Jesus drives a heavy load. Jesus with worn, wrinkled hands. Jesus sows a patch of land. Jesus hides a tattooed arm. Jesus keeping dinner warm. Jesus waves a foreign flag. Jesus rings a washing rag. Jesus leans on prison bars. And then this is the song that got her. Jesus swinging in my yard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. just and, and I look over her and she's, you know, at that point we, we <laughs> still understand. have, you know, little toddlers. And, sure. You know, she's thinking like, you know, this even just being compassionate and kind and setting aside time for your children, for the waiter, for the person that that comes and is covering up his tattooed arms because he's not sure how you're going to receive them. You know, all of this, just daily life, showing kindness and compassion for people whose stories you don't know, you're loving Jesus. We we need to get better at just ordinary kindness. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. This doesn't require a mission trip. <laughs> yeah. no, if you go out of your house, no, you doesn't. know, you can you can put this parable into application. So, we would say can these good works save you? No. But neither can a faith that has no inclination toward these good works. Mm-hmm. That's a, what Luther said, you are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's a good word, and uh, I think it's what we will end on. Uh, Folks, I hope that you've enjoyed your time with us today, this study of this parable, simile, prophetic statement. I don't know really (laughs) what exactly it was. You know what it was? It was Jesus talking, and anytime Mm -hmm. Jesus talks, it's important. Jesus doesn't waste words. He doesn't say the wrong words. This was what we needed to hear. And it came from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. So um, I'm glad that we were able to sit together and uh, and talk a little bit about what it meant. If you'd like to correspond with Sam and I, if you've got questions or like to make a comment, something that uh, maybe something that we said sparked some 
something in you and you would just like to share with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, which is where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find all of them on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, and in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app, where you can also find everything else that's going on around Rio Vista Church. Sam and I'll be back next week uh, with another topic. Uh, this actually concludes He Gave Us Stories, uh, but we'll be back next week with more as we come into Palm Sunday and Holy Week and Easter um, we have le- many good things to share with you. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.